Hello, and welcome to Storytime for Grown-Ups. I'm Faith Moore, and this season we're reading Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Each episode, I'll read one chapter from the book, pausing from time to time to give brief explanations so it's easier to follow along. It's like an audiobook with built-in notes. So brew a pot of tea, find a cozy chair, and settle in. It's story time. Welcome back and happy President's Day to those of you who are in the U.S. I know we have listeners all over the world, which is actually really amazing, and I I love that. So I know it's not President's Day everywhere, but here in the U.S. it's President's Day, so happy President's Day. And because it is President's Day, I am actually away. And so I recorded this episode a bit earlier than usual. So normally I wait for your questions to come in, and then I pick the ones that I want to answer, and then I record usually the day before. But this time I had to record in advance, which means that I I was not able to collect your questions for chapter 12. So I cheated a little and I grabbed a question that came in after episode 11, chapter 11, and I'm going to use it as a kind of jumping off point to talk about something that I just wanted to bring to your attention. And this, of course, is why you should ask questions and send in comments, even if you know that we are on a different chapter, that we've gotten ahead of you and you have, you know, life has gotten in the way and you haven't been keeping up with us exactly on time please get those questions in anyway because they do stay relevant and I will pick and choose from them if I need to or if it seems like a question is still relevant or I'll save questions that I think would be best to answer later. So that's what I'm doing now. If you did ask questions, if you submitted questions for chapter 12 and now you're disappointed because I haven't seen them, don't worry. I will come back and I will see them. And like I just said, they will maybe still be relevant and I may select them later. So please don't forget to get your questions in. You can do that by going to my website, faithkmore.com and clicking on contact, or you can find the link to that contact page right here in the show notes. You can also find me on X at faithkmore and you can send me a DM. You can just do a post there and tag me, or you can reply to the posts that I do about each episode. So please do get those questions and comments, and I love them. I love to read them, and I love going away and researching the answers to the questions so that I can give you the best possible answers. If you are just finding out about Storytime for Grown-Ups, I'm so glad that you're here. If you've never read Jane Eyre before, you may want to pause this episode and go back to chapter one. I think you probably will want to do that because we are reading Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, chapter by chapter, with a few notes along the way. So this is about to be chapter 13. So if you don't know the story at all, you'll be kind of lost. So go back to chapter chapter one. If you're new and you do know Jane Eyre and you just kind of want to hang out with a bunch of people that love this book or are coming to love it and we're reading it together and talking about the book, then jump right in and join us. We're so glad to have you. Thank you so much as always for all of your reviews, your comments, your ratings, the way that you're talking about it to people that you know. It really is working. It's doing great things for the show. Keep that up. Please make sure that you are following or subscribed wherever you're listening. And if you haven't yet had a chance to tap that five stars or write a review, I and if you have the time, I would really appreciate it. It, it means a lot to me and it really helps the show. If you're wondering 
who I am and what is going on here and you're just joining us, feel free to check out my website, faithkmore.com. There's all kinds of information there about who I am, what I do, my writing, and also links to my books. So that's a good place to find me. So we're going to just do a very quick question section this time because as I say, I am actually away. I am not here. I am speaking to you from the from the past. So um, we'll do a very quick question section and then we will move on to chapter 13. Before we do that though, let's just recap where we left off at the end of chapter 12. Where we left off, Jane is enjoying her time at Thornfield in the sense that she finds Mrs. Fairfax nice and Adele is a sweet pupil, but there are things that make her feel like she wants something more. She doesn't have any kind of intellectual stimulation at Thornfield. There's no one to talk to. There's no novelty, nothing new. And so she's starting to feel a little bit antsy. So for something to do, she took a letter that Mrs. Fairfax needed to mail and she was walking into the little town of Hay when she encountered a man on a horse and the horse slipped on some ice and the man fell and Jane helped him up and he rode away. And then when she got home, she realized that the man was in fact Mr. Rochester, the owner of Thornfield Hall. Okay, so the question that I am borrowing from chapter 11 that I'm going to use as a jumping off point for just a very quick little comment, something that I want you to focus on or that you can focus on if you're interested moving forward, comes to us from Sarah via X. Sarah writes, is the third story of Thornfield somehow reminiscent of the Red Room at Gateshead? So remember, at, the, at in chapter 11, that was the chapter where Jane arrived at Thornfield and Mrs. Fairfax took her on a tour of the whole house and she ended up in the third story where she heard the strange laughter that turned out to be Grace Poole and you know, she was very kind of freaked out and it was very spooky there. And then, of course, if you remember back in the very beginning of the story, when Jane was thrust into the Red Room at Gateshead as a punishment, she became very frightened because it was the room where Mr. Reed, her uncle, had died. And she became convinced that some kind of supernatural entity was going to come and be with her there. And she was very frightened. And that's what caused her to have a, a fit and, you know, faint, essentially. So, what I love about this question is that Sarah is noticing that there are these these undercurrents of not necessarily actual supernatural things, but the fear of the supernatural or even kind of a belief on Jane's part in the supernatural, even as an adult, right? As a child, you know, we kind of expect children to be afraid of the dark or of ghosts or monsters or things like that. But now Jane is 18 and she is still kind of, her first instinct is to think something supernatural is going on. She hears this laugh and she doesn't think, oh, there's a weird person up here laughing. She thinks it's a ghost or it's a monster. And th this idea of the supernatural is going to become very important as a theme, you know? So we've been developing some themes lately, right? We have the theme of Christianity and what makes a good Christian and what makes a bad Christian and what does that mean and what does Bronte think about all of these things? This is another, We oh, and we also have the idea of birds and how birds relate to Jane specifically. And we've had a couple of examples of Jane being compared to a bird and more will come. So we're looking out for those things. We're looking out for the the 
examples of different people embodying different Christian philosophies. We're looking out for Jane as a bird. And we're and here's another one, the supernatural. And I'm going to talk more about this in a little while and another episode as it relates to something else. But here I just want to point out that the supernatural does kind of underlie a lot of the things that are going on here. And now that we've met Mr. Rochester, I want to particularly draw your attention to the ways in which Jane and Rochester talk about the supernatural in relation to each other. So, so far we've had Jane thinking that Mr. Rochester's horse coming down the lane was the guy trash, this kind of strange supernatural creature that takes the form of different animals, like a horse or a dog. And she becomes convinced that this supernatural being is coming down the path, right? And then it's just Mr. Rochester. And, but, but this undercurrent of the supernatural pervades that first meeting for Jane with Mr. Rochester. And in this coming chapter, chapter 13, and subsequent chapters, so this is something I'm sort of alerting you to, to be looking out for if you're interested, Mr. Rochester will also talk about Jane in terms of the supernatural. And the supernatural will continue to be a kind of sort of bubbling undercurrent that goes on below the surface of the narrative and below the surface of different relationships within the story. So that's really it. I just wanted to draw your attention to that, to the supernatural, to the fact that there are these spaces in the book. And, you know, Sarah points this out, the the Red Room at Gateshead and also the third story at Thornfield. There are spaces that seem to draw out the supernatural. And Jane certainly has some kind of belief in the supernatural and the ways that Mr. Rochester and Jane use the supernatural to think and talk about each other. So that's just a quick kind of point of interest. And remember, you do not have to think about these things at all if you do not want to. If you just want to listen to the story and let it wash over you and enjoy the characters and the plot and everything that's going on in the story, please do. That is a perfectly acceptable way to understand this book. But if you're interested in these little deep dives or kind of some of the under the the themes that run underneath the story or the kinds of things that Bronte was perhaps trying to tease out as she went along, then these deep dives might be interesting to you. All right, I think that's it for now. Don't forget to get your questions in. You can pause the episode as you're listening and ask me because things are going to start getting more and more interesting from here, at least in my opinion. So, all right, everyone, let's get started with chapter 13 of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. It's story time. Chapter 13 Mr. Rochester, it seems, by the surgeon's orders, went to bed early that night, nor did he rise soon next morning. When he did come down, it was to attend to business. His agent and some of his tenants were arrived and waiting to speak with him. So as a gentleman and the landlord of this surrounding area, Mr. Rochester has obligations with his tenants and his land agent and everybody, but he's often away, so now that he's back, everybody is clamoring to talk to him. Adele and I had now to vacate the library. It would be in daily requisition as a reception room for callers. A fire was lit in an apartment upstairs, and there I carried our books and arranged it for the future schoolroom. I discerned in the course of the morning that Thornfield Hall was a changed place. No longer silent as a church, it echoed every hour or two to a knock at the door, 
or a clang of the bell. Steps, too, often traversed the hall, and new voices spoke in different keys below. A rill from the outer world was flowing through it. It had a master. For my part, I liked it better. Adele was not easy to teach that day. She could not apply. She kept running to the door and looking over the banisters to see if she could get a glimpse of Mr. Rochester. Then she coined pretexts to go downstairs, in order, as I shrewdly suspected, to visit the library, where I knew she was not wanted. Then, when I got a little angry and made her sit still, she continued to talk incessantly of her ami, Monsieur Edouard Fairfax de Rochester, as she dubbed him. I had not before heard his prenomens. So her, she says her friend, Mr. Edward Fairfax Rochester, and Jane saying she'd never heard his first name before. And to conjecture what presents he had brought her, for it appears he had intimated the night before that when his luggage came from Milcutt, there would be found amongst it a little box in whose contents she had an interest. Et cela doit signifier, said she, qu'il y aura là dedans un cadeau pour moi, et peut-être pour vous aussi, mademoiselle. Monsieur parlait de vous. Il m'a demandé le nom de ma gouvernante, et si elle n'était pas une petite personne assez mince et un peu pâle. J'ai dit que oui. Car c'est vrai, n'est-ce pas, mademoiselle? First of all, excuse my accent, but what she's saying is, and that must mean that there will be a present in there for me and perhaps for you too, mademoiselle. Monsieur spoke about you. He asked me the name of my governess and if she was not a small person, quite thin and a little pale. I said yes, because it's true, isn't it, mademoiselle? I and my pupil dined as usual in Mrs. Fairfax's parlor. The afternoon was wild and snowy, and we passed it in the schoolroom. At dark, I allowed Adele to put away books and work, and to run downstairs, for, from the comparative silence below, and from the cessation of appeals to the doorbell, I conjectured that Mr. Rochester was now at liberty. Left alone, I walked to the window. But nothing was to be seen thence. Twilight and snowflakes together thickened the air, and hid the very shrubs on the lawn. I let down the curtain and went back to the fireside. In the clear embers, I was tracing a view not unlike a picture I remembered to have seen of the castle of Heidelberg on the Rhine, when Mrs. Fairfax came in, breaking up by her entrance the fiery mosaic I had been piercing together, and scattering, too, some heavy, unwelcome thoughts that were beginning to throng on my solitude. "'Mr. Rochester would be glad if you and your pupil would take tea with him in the drawing-room this evening,' said she. "'He has been so much engaged all day that he could not ask to see you before.' "'When is his tea-time?' I inquired. Oh, at six o'clock. He keeps early hours in the country. You had better change your frock now. I will go with you and fasten it. Here is a candle. Is it necessary to change my frock? Her frock is just like her dress. Yes, you had better. I always dress for the evening when Mr. Rochester is here. In the upper classes at this time, people would have dressed in fancy clothes for the evening. So they would have changed their clothes for evening time. So now that Mr. Rochester is here, Mrs. Fairfax is saying that they should keep this custom. This additional ceremony seemed somewhat stately. However, I repaired to my room and, with Mrs. Fairfax's aid, replaced my black stuff dress by one of black silk, the best and the only additional one I had, except one of light gray, which, in my lowwood notions of the toilette, I thought too fine to be worn, except on first-rate occasions. "'You want a brooch,' said Mrs. Fairfax. I had a single little pearl ornament which Miss Temple gave me as a parting keepsake. I put it on, and then we went downstairs." Unused as I was to strangers, it was rather a trial to appear thus formally summoned to Mr. Rochester's presence. I let Mrs. Fairfax precede me into the dining room, 
and kept in her shade as we crossed that apartment, and passing the arch, whose curtain was now dropped, entered the elegant recess beyond. Two wax candles stood lighted on the table, and two on the mantelpiece. Basking in the light and heat of a superb fire lay Pilate. Adele knelt near him. Half reclined on a couch appeared Mr. Rochester, his foot supported by the cushion. He was looking at Adele and the dog. The fire shone full on his face. I knew my traveler, with his broad and jetty eyebrows, his square forehead, made squarer by the horizontal sweep of his black hair. I recognized his decisive nose, more remarkable for character than beauty, his full nostrils, denoting, I thought, color. Color is a reference to medieval medicine, the notion of the four humors, and so color meant a person was irritable and angry. His grim mouth, chin, and jaw. Yes, all three were very grim, and no mistake. His shape, now divested of cloak, I perceived harmonized in squareness with his physiognomy. Remember when we talked about phrenology and physiognomy? So this is a reference to it again. So his facial features might mean something about his character, according to Bronte. I suppose it was a good figure in the athletic sense of the term, broad-chested and thin-flanked, though neither tall nor graceful. Mr. Rochester must have been aware of the entrance of Mrs. Fairfax and myself, but it appeared he was not in the mood to notice us, for he never lifted his head as we approached. Here is Miss Eyre, sir, said Mrs. Fairfax in her quiet way. He bowed, still not taking his eyes from the group of the dog and child. Let Miss Eyre be seated, said he, and there was something in the forced stiff bow, in the impatient yet formal tone, which seemed further to express, what the deuce is it to me whether Miss Eyre be there or not? At this moment I am not disposed to accost her. I sat down quite disembarrassed. A reception of finished politeness would probably have confused me. I could not have returned or repaid it by answering grace and elegance on my part. But harsh caprice laid me under no obligation. On the contrary, a decent quiescence under the freak of manner gave me the advantage. Besides, the eccentricity of the proceeding was piquant. I felt interested to see how he would go on. So Jane is again saying that Mr. Rochester's abrupt demeanor and his grumpiness make her feel much more comfortable than if he was polite and kind to her. He went on as a statue would. That is, he neither spoke nor moved. Mrs. Fairfax seemed to think it necessary that someone should be amiable, and she began to talk, kindly as usual, and as usual rather trite. She condoled with him on the pressure of business he had had all day, on the annoyance it must have been to him with that painful sprain. Then she commended his patience and perseverance in going through with it. Madam, I should like some tea, was the sole rejoinder she got. She hastened to ring the bell, and when the tray came, she proceeded to arrange the cups, spoons, etc., with assiduous celerity. I and Adele went to the table, but the master did not leave his couch. Will you hand Mr. Rochester's cup, said Mrs. Fairfax to me. Adele might perhaps spill it. I did as requested. As he took the cup from my hand, Adele, thinking the moment propitious for making a request in my favor, cried out, N'est-ce pas, monsieur, qu'il y a un cadeau pour Mademoiselle Eyre dans votre petite coffre? She's asking if Mr. Rochester has a present for Jane. Who talks of cadeau? said he gruffly. So cadeau is French for present. Did you expect a present, Miss Eyre? Are you fond of presents? And he searched my face with eyes that I saw were dark, irate, and piercing. I hardly know, sir. I have little experience of them. They are generally thought pleasant things. Generally thought? But what do you think? I should be obliged to take time, sir, before I could give you an answer worthy of your acceptance. A present has many faces to it, has it not? 
and one should consider all before pronouncing an opinion as to its nature. Miss Eyre, you are not so unsophisticated as Adele. She demands a cadeau clamorously the moment she sees me. You beat about the bush. Because I have less confidence in my desserts than Adele has. She can prefer the claim of old acquaintance, and the right, too, of custom, for she says you have always been in the habit of giving her playthings. But if I had to make out a case, I should be puzzled, since I am a stranger and have done nothing to entitle me to an acknowledgement. Oh, don't fall back on over-modesty. I have examined Adele, and find you have taken great pains with her. She is not bright. She has no talents. Yet in a short time she has made much improvement. Sir, you have now given me my cadeau. I am obliged to you. It is the mead teachers most covet, praise of their pupils' progress. Humph, said Mr. Rochester, and he took his tea in silence. Come to the fire, said the master when the tray was taken away, and Mrs. Fairfax had settled into a corner with her knitting, while Adele was leading me by the hand round the room, showing me the beautiful books and ornaments on the consoles and chiffoniers. We obeyed, as in duty bound. Adele wanted to take a seat on my knee, but she was ordered to amuse herself with Pilot. You have been resident in my house three months? Yes, sir. And you came from... From Lowood School, in Blankshire. Ah, a charitable concern. How long were you there? Eight years. Eight years? You must be tenacious of life. I thought half the time in such a place would have done up any constitution. No wonder you have rather the look of another world. I marveled where you had got that sort of face. When you came on me in Hay Lane last night, I thought unaccountably of fairy tales, and had half a mind to demand whether you had bewitched my horse. I am not sure yet. Who are your parents? I have none. Nor ever had, I suppose. Do you remember them? No. I thought not. And so you were waiting for your people when you sat on that stile? For whom, sir? For the men in green. It was a proper moonlight evening for them. Did I break through one of your rings that you spread that damned ice on the causeway? Mr. Rochester is implying that Jane is a fairy or some other kind of supernatural creature. I shook my head. The men in green all forsook England a hundred years ago, said I, speaking as seriously as he had done. And not even in Hay Lane or the fields about it could you find a trace of them. I don't think either summer or harvest or winter moon will ever shine on their revels more. Mrs. Fairfax had dropped her knitting, and, with raised eyebrows, seemed wondering what sort of talk this was. Well, resumed Mr. Rochester, if you disown parents, you must have some sort of kinsfolk, uncles and aunts. No, none that I ever saw. And your home? I have none. Where do your brothers and sisters live? I have no brothers or sisters. Who recommended you to come here? I advertised, and Mrs. Fairfax answered my advertisement. Yes, said the good lady, who now knew what ground we were upon. And I am daily thankful for the choice Providence led me to make. Miss Eyre has been an invaluable companion to me and a kind and careful teacher to Adele. Don't trouble yourself to give her a character, returned Mr. Rochester. Eulogisms will not bias me. I shall judge for myself. She began by felling my horse. Sir, said Mrs. Fairfax, I have to thank her for this sprain. The widow looked bewildered. Miss Eyre, have you ever lived in a town? No, sir. Have you seen much society? None but the pupils and teachers of Lowood, and now the inmates of Thornfield. Have you read much? Only such books as came in my way, and they have not been numerous or very learned. You have lived the life of a nun. No doubt you are well drilled in religious forms. Brocklehurst, who I understand directs Lowood, is a parson, is he not? Yes, sir. And you girls probably worshipped him, 
as a convent full of religious would worship their director? Oh, no. You are very cool. No? What? A novice not worship her priest? That sounds blasphemous. I disliked Mr. Brocklehurst, and I was not alone in the feeling. He is a harsh man, at once pompous and meddling. He cut off our hair, and for economy's sake, bought us bad needles and thread, with which we could hardly sew. That was a very false economy, remarked Mrs. Fairfax, who now again caught the drift of the dialogue. And was that the head in front of his offending? demanded Mr. Rochester. He starved us when he had the sole superintendence of the provision department, before the committee was appointed, and he bored us with long lectures once a week, and with evening readings from books of his own indicting, about sudden deaths and judgments, which made us afraid to go to bed. What age were you when you went to Lowood? About ten. And you stayed there eight years. You are now, then, eighteen? I assented. Arithmetic, you see, is useful. Without its aid, I should hardly have been able to guess your age. It is a point difficult to fix, where the features and countenance are so much at variance as in your case. And now, what did you learn at Lowood? Can you play? A little. Of course. That is the established answer. Go into the library. I mean, if you please. Excuse my tone of command. I am used to say, do this, and it is done. I cannot alter my customary habits for one new inmate. Go, then, into the library. Take a candle with you. Leave the door open. Sit down to the piano and play a tune. I departed, obeying his directions. Enough, he called out in a few minutes. You play a little, I see, like any other English schoolgirl, perhaps rather better than some, but not well. I closed the piano and returned. Mr. Rochester continued. Adele showed me some sketches this morning, which she said were yours. I don't know whether they were entirely of your doing. Probably a master aided you? No, indeed, I interjection. Ah, that pricks pride. Well... Fetch me your portfolio, if you can vouch for its contents being original. But don't pass your word unless you are certain. I can recognize patchwork. Then I will say nothing, and you shall judge for yourself, sir. I brought the portfolio from the library. Approach the table, said he, and I wheeled it to his couch. Adele and Mrs. Fairfax drew near to see the pictures. No crowding, said Mr. Rochester. Take the drawings from my hands as I finish with them, but don't push your faces up to mine. He deliberately scrutinized each sketch and painting. Three he laid aside. The others, when he had examined them, he swept from him. Take them off to the other table, Mrs. Fairfax, said he, and look at them with Adele. You, glancing at me, resume your seat and answer my questions. I perceive these pictures were done by one hand. Was that hand yours? Yes. And when did you find time to do them? They have taken much time and some thought. I did them in the last two vacations I spent at Lowood when I had no other occupation. Where did you get your copies? Out of my head. That head I see now on your shoulders? Yes, sir. Has it other furniture of the same kind within? I should think it may have. I should hope better. He spread the pictures before him, and again surveyed them alternately. While he is so occupied, I will tell you, dear reader, what they are. And first, I must premise that they are nothing wonderful. The subjects had, indeed, risen vividly on my mind. As I saw them with a the spiritual eye, before I attempted to embody them, they were striking. But my hand would not second my fancy, and in each case it had wrought out but a pale portrait of the thing I had conceived. She's not happy with these paintings because she feels she wasn't able to accurately capture what she had seen in her mind's eye. These pictures were in watercolors. The first represented clouds, low and livid, 
rolling over a swollen sea. All the distance was an eclipse, so too was the foreground, or rather, the nearest billows, for there was no land. One gleam of light lifted into relief a half-submerged mast on which sat a cormorant, dark and large, with wings flecked with foam. Its beak held a gold bracelet set with gems that I had touched with as brilliant tints as my palette could yield, and as glittering distinctness as my pencil could impart. Sinking below the bird and mast, a drowned corpse glanced through the green water, a fair arm with the only limb clearly visible, whence the bracelet had been washed or torn. This first picture is a shipwreck with a bird plucking a jeweled bracelet off the wrist of a drowned corpse. The second picture contained for foreground only the dim peak of a hill, with grass and some leaves slanting as if by a breeze. Beyond and above spread an expanse of sky, dark blue as at twilight, rising into the sky was a woman's shape to the bust, portrayed in tints as dusk and soft as I could combine. The dim forehead was crowned with a star. The lineaments below were seen as through the suffusion of vapor. The eyes shone dark and wild. The hair streamed shadowy, like a beamless cloud torn by storm or by electric travail. On the neck lay a pale reflection like moonlight. The same faint luster touched the train of thin clouds from which rose and bowed this vision of the evening star. The second painting is the evening star personified as a woman. The third showed the pinnacle of an iceberg piercing a polar winter sky. A muster of northern lights reared their dim lances, close serried along the horizon. Throwing these into distance rose in the foreground a head, a colossal head inclined towards the iceberg and resting against it. Two thin hands joined under the forehead and supporting it drew up before the lower features a sable veil. A brow quite bloodless, white as bone, and an eye hollow and fixed blank of meaning but for the glassiness of despair alone were visible. Above the temples, amidst wreathed turban folds of black drapery, vague in its character and consistency as cloud, gleamed a ring of white flame, gemmed with sparkles of a more lurid tinge. This pale crescent was the likeness of a kingly crown. What it diademed was the shape which shape had none. This third picture is a giant head resting on an iceberg. Were you happy when you painted these pictures? Asked Mr. Rochester presently. I was absorbed, sir. Yes, and I was happy. To paint them, in short, was to enjoy one of the keenest pleasures I have ever known. That is not saying much. Your pleasures, by your own account, have been few. But I dare say you did exist in a kind of artist's dreamland while you blent and arranged these strange tints. Did you sit at them long each day? I had nothing else to do, because it was the vacation, and I sat at them from morning till noon, and from noon till night. The length of the midsummer days favored my inclination to apply. And you felt self-satisfied with the result of your ardent labors? Far from it. I was tormented by the contrast between my idea and my handiwork. In each case, I had imagined something which I was quite powerless to realize. Not quite. You have secured the shadow of your thought, but no more, probably. You had not enough of the artist's skill and science to give it full being. Yet the drawings are, for a schoolgirl, peculiar. As to the thoughts, they are elfish. Mr. Rochester is comparing Jane's images, and therefore Jane, with a supernatural being, an elf. These eyes in the evening star you must have seen in a dream. How could you make them look so clear and yet not at all brilliant? For the planet above quells their rays. And what meaning is that in their solemn depth? And who taught you to paint wind? 
There is a high gale in that sky and on this hilltop. Where did you see Latmos? For that is Latmos. There, put the drawings away. Latmos is a mountain from a Greek legend about the moon goddess, Selene, who falls in love with a mortal Endymion. I had scarce tied the strings of the portfolio when, looking at his watch, he said abruptly, It is nine o'clock. What are you about, Miss Eyre, to let Adele sit up so long? Take her to bed. Adele went to kiss him before quitting the room. He endured the caress, but scarcely seemed to relish it more than Pilate would have done, nor so much. I wish you all good night now, said he, making a movement of the hand toward the door, in token that he was tired of our company and wished to dismiss us. Mrs. Fairfax folded up her knitting. I took my portfolio. We curtsied to him, received a frigid bow in return, and so withdrew. You said Mr. Rochester was not strikingly peculiar, Mrs. Fairfax, I observed when I rejoined her in her room after putting Adele to bed. Well, is he? I think so. He is very changeful and abrupt. True, no doubt he may appear so to a stranger, but I am so accustomed to his manner, I never think of it. Well then, if he has peculiarities of temper, allowances should be made. Why? Partly because it is his nature, and we can none of us help our nature. And partly because he has painful thoughts, no doubt, to harass him and make his spirits unequal. What about? Family troubles, for one thing. But he has no family. Not now, but he has had, or at least relatives. He lost his elder brother a few years since. His elder brother? Yes, the present Mr. Rochester has not been very long in possession of the property, only about nine years. So Mr. Rochester's elder brother would have inherited the house and the lands and any titles that came with it, but since he died, then all of those went suddenly to Mr. Rochester. Nine years is a tolerable time. Was he so very fond of his brother as to be still inconsolable for his loss? Why, no, perhaps not. I believe there were some misunderstandings between them. Mr. Roland Rochester was not quite just to Mr. Edward, and perhaps he prejudiced his father against him. The old gentleman was fond of money and anxious to keep the family estate together. He did not like to diminish the property by division, and that he was anxious that Mr. Edward should have wealth too, to keep up the consequence of the name. And soon after he was of age, some steps were taken that were not quite fair, and made a great deal of mischief. Old Mr. Rochester and Mr. Rowland combined to bring Mr. Edward into what he considered a painful position, for the sake of making his fortune. What the precise nature of that position was I never clearly knew, but his spirit could not brook what he had to suffer in it. He is not very forgiving. He broke with his family, and now for many years he has led an unsettled kind of life. I don't think he has ever been resident at Thornfield for a fortnight together, since the death of his brother, without a will, left him master of the estate, and indeed, no wonder he shuns the old place." Okay, so she's saying that Mr. Rochester's father and brother did something to him, Mrs. Fairfax says she doesn't exactly know what, that allowed Mr. Rochester to make money, since he wouldn't have had any on his own because he was the second son. But whatever that something was, Mr. Rochester really didn't like it, and it put him in a very bad position in some way, and that's the reason why he's never at home and he's kind of wandering around all the time. Why should he shun it? Perhaps he thinks it gloomy. The answer was evasive. I should have liked something clearer but Mrs. Fairfax either could not or would not give me more explicit information of the origin and nature of Mr. Rochester's trials. She averred they were a mystery to herself, and that what she knew was chiefly from conjecture. It was evident, indeed, that she wished me to drop the subject, which I did, accordingly. Thank you so much for listening. I'd love to know what you thought of the chapter. Is there anything you'd like me to clarify? Did something particularly interest you? Please go to my website, faithkmore.com, click on Contact, 
and send me your questions and thoughts. Or you can click on the link in the show notes to contact me. I'll feature one or two of your entries at the start of the next episode. Before I go, I'd like to ask a quick favor. This is an independent podcast. It's produced, recorded, and marketed by me. So I need your help. Please share this podcast with your friends. Post about it on social media. If you're studying literature at school, tell your teacher and your classmates about it. Talk about it in the break room at work. And if you could, please subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. I would really, really appreciate it. All right, everyone. Story time is over. To be continued. Thank you.